into lockdown, last on the breaks, once again coming to you with another feature interview as we continue to wait out the COVID-19 pandemic. Hope you're all safe and well. Many thanks for coming back to join us. Who are we talking to this week, Matt? Well, we're up very late, as people could probably tell from the uh, the lighting situation on both our cameras. Uh, which... <laughs> I'm sorry I look like a vampire. <laughs> yeah, but, but that means that we're talking to someone in a completely different time zone to us, and it is, in fact, Kevin Schwantz coming back from a fishing trip to speak to us here. Very, very kind of Kevin, and thank you to... Shout out to Marnie, who's been... Uh, who's uh, well, a very close friend of Kevin's, who's been sorting this out for us. Many thank yous to you. Uh, Kevin wanted to get in touch because we wanted, we were going to do a podcast with him, actually, for uh, the America's Grand Prix. But uh, obviously that hasn't happened yet. So here we are. But we wanted to talk to Kevin about a range of different subjects, what his perspectives are on the the changes in American racing, uh, as well as some of the more interesting experiences in his career, particularly as well how rivalry whether it did change him or not in his riding styles and this and that. So uh, couldn't, of course, talk to Kevin Schwantz without mentioning Wayne Rainey, of course. But uh, and then, of course, at the end, what do we have, Fran, as always? We have the... That really put me off. Wow, that was elegant. Yes. Uh, we have the Kenwood Quickfire segment brought to uh, you by our sponsor, Kenwood, of the podcast and also our radio communications provider in the paddock on the go. So when if you see us running around talking to each other, that's also thanks to Kenwood. Uh, I think it's quite a good quick fire round this time. Really there's good, I like li- it a lot. There's a little bit of extra meat in places, but it's genuinely some instinct. Uh, so uh, does what it says on the tin this time around, I think. Some big, big surprises there. But yes, thank you again uh, to Kevin for uh, for uh, allowing uh, us to do this with him. Uh, and apologies if there's a couple of connectivity issues. Hopefully um, it's uh, it's not too bad in the actual edit. But uh, it's I think it's the time of night here uh, where I am in England, where you are. Everybody's using Wi-Fi watching Netflix even more than normal, of course, be it in lockdown. <laughs> Indeed, I did have to uh, yell at the other inhabitants of my house to make sure they didn't use the internet. So hopefully it's come through all nice and clear for you and you enjoy a really good little, uh, pretty pretty solid interview with Kevin Schwantz. There's a good few topics covered. Please enjoy it and uh, bye for now. Uh, Kevin, you're, you're looking quite tanned. You've been out on the boat today. Yeah, you know, that's kind of all I've been up to recently. Um, not so much just since this COVID-19 outbreak, but um, even before that, you know, it's not really anything to do with Suzuki anymore. Um, so, yeah, a lot of time down at the coast, a bunch of time out on the boat trying to fish, actually trying to cover up as much as I can, but the sun still gets you eventually. Oh, yeah, always. <laughs> it always does, isn't it? You can tell from how pale I am that I get that straight away. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment in the UK, we're uh, we're pretty much locked down completely, so only allowed outside sort of once a day or so. So, not much chance of the sun there. Although it's it's taken its toll, you can see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, so um, we wanted to to have a general catch up with you and get your perspectives on on various uh, aspects of the sport now and then, um, and and basically, well, want to know what. What what is what was life like for you at the moment, even pre pre lockdown? Obviously, fishing much at the moment. You said not much with the Suzuki going on, but what have you been up to recently? You know, not a whole lot. Um, you know, I was looking forward to MotoGP coming in April. Mm. Um, always good to catch up with everybody, see friends, and you know, almost family. A bunch of the, those people are. Um, you know, when that when that all got cancelled. Yeah, and leading up to that, just getting through winter, trying to trying to get back on the 
back on the motorcycle, back on the bicycle, you know, trying to stay fit as, at least as much as I possibly can. And broke a foot um, pretty badly over just over a year ago. And I haven't quite got back to my um, to my fitness level that I was at when I got hurt, that's for sure. How did you do that then? Oh, it's uh, it's a long story, but it's a it's a good one for um, for those kids out there that think you know what I'm just gonna get on the bike and play around for a minute. I don't need to put all my safety equipment on. Um, I was at my parents, a bunch of my friends were out. We were working on cutting some new trails through some area that that uh, that were pretty thick in brush, and my uh, my buddy's bike wouldn't start. So I said, "Here, ride my bike. You know, I'll just work on the trail today." So I didn't put my riding gear on and just jumped in the mule, drove out. You know, swinging an axe, cutting branches, clearing trail. We do about a mile's worth of trail. My buddy goes, oh, man, he goes, that trail is awesome. Here, go ride. So what do I do? I put his helmet on, but I got just a little, like a pair of lace-up boots on. Not even a proper boot, really. And I go out, and I ride, and I come back to finish. And where we finished, there's a bunch of trees that had burned down on our property. And this, the base of the stump has rotted a certain amount but the core is still pretty solid so the rotted part on the outside makes a nice little soft ramp so it makes a good jump and so i and when i landed i mean i was i was dead stopped i mean just, oh. just straight up straight down. When it came down, a tree that was laying on the ground a cedar tree that's still solid to the core was laying on the ground and the front wheel touched it and i tipped over and as i tipped over i'm like laughing because everybody's sitting right there and I fall over when I fall over the bike between the cedar tree and the engine cases of the engine crushes my foot. Oof. So if I'd have had a pair of motocross boots, if I'd had a pair of Alpine Stars on, um, you would have got up and continued to laugh about it. But instead, it was trying to figure out how to ride ride my motorcycle back to my parents' house <laughs> with only one. <laughs> Ouch! Yeah. So Just there's a lesson. <laughs> This is located a big bone, broke a bunch of little ones, had surgery, couldn't walk, for, no weight for six weeks, so crutches and a little little push cart around the house. And then I just hop up the stairs to go to bed because the bedroom's upstairs. Well, on the little push cart that I was getting around the house in, um, went in the laundry room to do some laundry. This is a couple, three weeks after surgery. Went oh, in nice. to do some laundry, went to turn around to go out. And when I did, back wheel of the pushy cart hit my foot. And I went straight over the bars. As I'm headed face first to the ground, I try to get my hand out to stop my face hitting the ground. When I do, I dislocate my shoulder. So, Kevin, no. Broken right foot, and I'm laying on the ground in the laundry room, going, "Huh? I wonder how much worse this can get." <laughs> you need to stick oh, to no. fishing, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, please, please stay safe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's quite quite adventurous. Definitely not lacking in adrenaline, although kind of the worst kind. But we'll we'll go back then to your career. Obviously, you're a legend uh, in terms of the Hall of Fame, but also, of course, for everything you did and achieved on track. How do you feel looking back now at the career you've achieved, and how is it? Do you feel like you're a different person now? We hear, obviously, you're not taking it that carefully in life. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> obviously, still some uh, some things running through there. Nah, completely satisfied with everything that, that I accomplished in my career. Or we accomplished, me and, and Suzuki as a team. Um, you know, I, of course, would I have... No, if everybody likes to ask that question, would you... What, 
what if you'd have ridden a Honda? If I'd have ridden a Honda, you know, who knows? I, I maybe would have never even won any Grand Prix. I said, Suzuki was built around me and my riding style. Um, you know, at, at Hondas, we've got to see it's ride it like it is until you go faster than the guy that's riding it now. And then when you do, then we'll start listening to you. So, um, you know, <laughs> happy as I could be, um, you know, to be a MotoGP legend and Motorsports motor Hall of Fame last year, which was a, a pretty big thing for me down in Florida, um, really kind of brings it all to to uh, to reality and let me make you realize you're in there with with Dale Earnhardt and you know car guys uh, of of all different um, you know of all different status to be in there um, you know a bunch of the other American riders are already in there and uh, it's uh, it, it was definitely an honor to be inducted into the Motorsports Hall of Fame last year but um, all in all you know happy I, I spent my entire career with Suzuki. Um, you know, I, 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 yeah, do I think I could have ridden another bike? Absolutely. I could have adapted my style to anything. But um, my relationship and my ongoing uh, work with Suzuki, I think, uh, really makes me happy that what I did and how I did it um, came to be. And that's good. And that's pretty zen. Sorry, can I ask one more follow-up? Yes, go on, go on. It, it must be, obviously, within motorcycle racing, when you've been the premier class world champion your place in history is completely secure so it must be an extra special feeling to then also get recognized with motorsport as a whole and get into that hall of fame too is that something that's pretty special compared to you the sport that you've been in has to recognize you because of what you've achieved but to then also get it on a, on a kind of bigger level as well yeah, absolutely. To um, you know, to, to 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 be in there, to be you know, to sit up uh, on stage with with the likes of Tony Stewart and Dario Franchitti. We're just we're just a few of the guys there, but um, you know, to be recognized and and hear them tell stories about watching. You know, Dario Franchitti said, "Oh, Schwantz." He goes, "When when I was a kid, there was I had a Kevin Schwantz poster hanging in my room," <laughs> and uh, you know, that's one of the things that Tony Stewart said in his induction speech that night was like. Frank Katie, now I know what's wrong with you. He goes, I, I had a Linda Vaughn poster hanging in my room. I didn't have a Kevin <laughs> But yeah, to, uh, to get recognized with a, with, a, with a group of motorsports heroes like they are um, absolutely really brings it to be. And we, we were going to ask this a little bit later on in the interview, but we'll, we'll loop back to the other stuff before. Um, I do want to know sort of how, how does it feel to inspire some motorsport greats now? Like, for example, a specific example I was thinking of was Davizioso took your 34 to the 125cc title, has gone on to become, you know, one of the current sort of guy, well, the, one of the guys to beat at the moment. Does that sort of thing, do, do you think, awesome that I inspired that guy? What, what, what's that like? Yeah, I mean any of the any of the current guys. Uh, Rossi's always said that he was he was who I who he idolized when he was a kid growing up watching racing. Um, you know, Dovey, of course. Um, you know, um, who knows how fast he might be if he had a three four on his bike instead of a zero four. To hear him mention, uh, you know, Renz last year said something about yeah, who would I really really like to race on a five hundred? And he said me. So. Um, yeah, to I mean to to still be mentioned in in some of the conversation with the generation that's out there right now is uh, is really special. I think that's pretty cool as well because now the standard answer from everyone because there's some guys who are so young even for us now is oh of course it's Valentino 
but you're the generation before who inspired the Valentinos. That must be pretty cool. What's the biggest thing you learned from racing? You know, I, um, <laughs> if it's something that, you know, I'm talking to a, a kid that's getting started racing and is, is just remember that it's going to be life on a scale jammed together in, in, in an hour. You know, maybe it's practice or maybe it's qualifying or maybe it's the race, but instead of it being, you know, uh, I'm going to be in school and it's going to be from start of the season to the end of the season, your whole day can go good from go from great to horrible in, you know, in, in one turn. And you have to be ready. You have to be ready to be able to accept the, the good and the bad. And you have to be able to put what's happened that maybe is going to have a could have a really negative effect on you. You have to be able to set that aside, forget about it and focus on what's what, what what's ahead of you. There's nothing you can do about the past. Hopefully, whatever mistake you made or whatever it was, um, speaking mostly of just, you know, experiences, racetrack, corner to corner, trying to win that race. And hold on, I'm only winning by 14 seconds. I want to win by trying the last lap of a race falling down. What, what was going through your head? Why did you think you needed to win by 20 seconds? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, then, I mean, it's just racing is all about – life on a on a scale that can be condensed into you know like i said in one term uh everything could be great warm-up good race good start good first two-thirds of the race great last lap last couple of laps you make a mistake um yeah it seems like it should be the end of the world for you but what you got to do is you got to learn from your mistakes and you got to be able to regroup and get back out on that that motorcycle and, and do what you need to do that following weekend when, at what point did you learn that? Have you, is that something you've now realized in retrospect, or did you realize it at the time? You know, it's something I probably learned as we struggled through the season in 92. Um, you know, we won one race in Mugello, and we were, I mean, we were just way, way, way off the pace most places. And, uh, you know, it's like this is a, a work in progress. I had a new crew chief after 91. Uh, it was He was learning me. I was learning you know, he, he was learning the way I communicated. I was trying to adapt my riding style. I had a teammate in Doug Chandler that was kind of the one that had maybe pushed me the most as a rider. Um, you know, at the end of the season, if I could have, I, I probably would have quit at the end of 92. I was like, man, this is just not, this is quit being fun. But we finished that season. We started 93 after the last Grand Prix in 92. We started testing parts and going through things that we tried all year long. And then we went back a week later and we did exactly the same thing and i'm like guys why do we have to try all this stuff again Stuart was like i want confirmation that this is really what you want and it wasn't just one lap that you did that was good it's made you think this and by the time 93 started we were as ready as we'd ever been i feel like that was pretty proven then and what came after that's amazing then that you what what was it then did you realize that you'd learned that at the time or over that sort of winter and coming back, could you envisage what you were about to achieve at all? Or how did you feel going into that? You know, it was probably just a little bit of, of, of how my career had progressed up to that part, up to that point from 88, 89, 90, 91, you know, everything winning a bunch of races and this and that as long as, as long as we were winning races, I was happy. But 92, we won one race and it was like a, the fifth or sixth race of the year at Mugello. And then we never were even really close again. Yeah, there were some injuries uh, later on in the season, but um, yeah, it, it's just one of those things you're like, 
what is it about this that, that, that makes it enjoyable? What is it about this that makes uh, makes everything better? And it's it's being focused. It's being able to 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 communicate and not come in the garage and be just completely flustered. Oh, I give up. This is never going to be any good. But realizing that every session and every lap is the opportunity to work on the bike. Every lap, every lap is the opportunity to make it better. Don't go out and crash early in practice because you're not going to learn anything. Yeah. And the same thing goes in the race. You know, as, as, as we started to look at the tally and, you know, only won one race. And I forget how far back we finished that season. It's like, wow. You're more, you're, years before, we won four or five or six Grand Prix every year. And that kept us in the top three or four. And I'm like, you know what? I can live with that. You know, if we could get a bit more consistency um who knows and a little bit of it was mechanical and a little bit of it was was me so i think suzuki and myself used 92 to both work on ourselves you know from from top to bottom and in 93 and and, and following years i think that really showed i think a lot of the riders in the world championship nowadays would really would really value having that sort of clarity at the, that like you did at that time in your career and their career at the moment but something else which helped with it pushing you on to the next level was of course your well now great friend i would say wayne rainey uh we did have to ask you a little bit about the rivalry but what uh, how so you've managed to on self-reflection change the way you were um you were proceeding going forward but how did rivalry uh change your approach as well or did it even you know i think yeah absolutely it did um no my, my i guess my approach from a rivalry standpoint never changed getting beat by him whether he was third and i was fourth or he was first and i was second it was always a bitter pill to swallow and it was uh i was never gonna i was never gonna find a way to be happy about anything until there was the next race and that I could finish in front of him. Uh, and I, I think you ask him the same question and he'll say the same. As long as Schwantz was behind me, that's all that mattered. The further close, the further to the front we were make, made, made the result even that much better. So, um, you know, Wayne and I were just two, those, two, those two ends of the magnet that just could not even, I mean, couldn't, you couldn't even put us in the same room in the beginning. Um, we put us in the same room. We both just look the opposite direction because not even going to not even come close to recognizing that he's in this room. So, um, you know, and I, I think it was it was good for both of us. Uh, would I have ever been as good as I was without someone like him to be under my skin all the time, except when he was behind me? Maybe not. And I think, <laughs> think for Wayne Rainey, I think the same probably said about me. Yeah, because I think that. Go ahead, Fran, sorry. No, I was going to say, my next question was going to be, do you think that any rider, not just you and him, but do you think that any rider will only ever get to their true best if they have that rivalry? Because we've seen it with so many classics and also in other motorsport like Senna and Prost, something special about the rivalry brings out such of the best. Do you think it's even possible if you're kind of the guy on top of the pile without that much to kind of nip at your heels. You know, Rossi's probably a good example of that he's, he's been there through several rivals that have, that, you know, that have, that have ridden him hard, beaten him. Um, and he, you know, he finds a way to continue to come back and, and, and race at the front. Um, not just one specific rival, but that's because his career's lasted as long as it has too. I mean, most of the time, you know, it was Lawson and, it was Lawson and Gardner probably more than it was Lawson and Spencer. And it was Robertson Spencer. So, um, you know, those guys, 
had careers that just kind of happened to be as a younger one was coming and an older one was going going away. Uh, you know, whereas Wayne and I both got to Grand Prix racing in '88, <laughs> and uh, we we were there to fight it out the whole time. What what do you make of some of the some of the modern day rivalries? Because obviously the the tone of all these different rivalries can be so different i think the one of the era at the moment marquez versus uh, davizioso and then going forward to what could have been this season marquez's quattararo very different type of rivalries compared to what for example rossi and marquez have had and what you and wayne had what's what's your thoughts on these types of rivalries and and their yeah the general feel about them all you know they're great for the sport uh you know and, and as the rider who's getting the better of it it's great for him especially um, you know, I think the Marquez Dovey rivalry, uh, as it comes to battles that come down to last laps, maybe Dovey has a bit of the upper hand on it, but I think overall, uh, Marquez definitely has more, you know, has championships and, and, uh, many, many more, more wins. So, um, you know, I guess the, the probably the most unique thing about motorsport now that I see is how little interaction there ever is, uh, amongst the riders, um, you know, we used to race, uh, and the classic example is we used to race at Aston. Race and finish on Saturday afternoon where everybody would go to their hospitality units, get it up, have, get dinner, have whatever. And we'd all, as riders, we'd all stay in our motorhomes that night. By the time the crowds cleared and, the, you know, paddock was there, it was too late to go anywhere. So we'd sit around and pick somebody's motorhome to go sit down and have, have beers outside at. And, you know, you'd... you'd back and forth a little bit about the race and yeah 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 but i mean at the end of it all um you know see lawson and myself and and rainy and possibly doing and gardner sitting around having a, a drink together or maybe even if it ended up a dinner somewhere amazing uh, Jerez, the classic example that restaurant right outside the front of Jerez. all the teams went there in 89 after lawson won and there was the biggest food fight that we all got in trouble for. <laughs> the victory party was, and Yamaha was doing it, and Suzuki was doing it, and I was involved, and Wayne was involved. And it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a, there was a little more camaraderie amongst those guys who Sunday afternoon at, at two o'clock when we shut our visors, uh, all we wanted to know was that the, everybody there was going to be behind us, and um, at the end of the day, we were still buddies and friends. Uh, at least long enough to have a beer together anyway. So what do you think is then the biggest thing that's changed about being a MotoGP rider sort of then and now? Do you think it is that side of it and how quote-unquote professional every single aspect of the job is? Or do you think it's more the riding or what aspect is it? You know, I I think probably the biggest aspect of of MotoGP racing that's changed uh, from when we raced till now is is how involved the electronics are, um, how it's completely made someone like Valentino Rossi have to change his riding style from the, the way he rode a 500 to the way he rides a modern-day MotoGP bike. Um, you know, it used to be, uh, used to be, uh, I think, 500s obviously were probably the mo- most difficult motorcycles of any to ride, but now it's come so so much more about how far off the bike you can hang and how much you can trust the electronics. And there's there's a... And I'm not saying that that's any any easier now than it was back then, but um, you know it's probably a, a much more physical uh, game right now than it than it ever was when it was when it was a 500. Because a 500, when it was close, they were an absolute dream to ride. The problem is having one set up close 
I can count on um, throughout my entire career. I can count on this hand and have a couple <laughs> of years left. So, of the 110 some odd Grand Prix, I probably had four bikes, three bikes that were that were really close to perfect. Uh, and man, were they fun to ride, that's for sure. And what about your experience with bikes with electronics as well? I wanted to, to ask you a little bit about your experience at the Suzuki 8 Hour twice. And then, of course, you even rode the Suzuki MotoGP bike before they came back to competition in 2015. What, what, what were those sorts of experiences like? You know, I have no idea about what the electronics were like on the Suzuki MotoGP bike because I had been testing a, an American Superbike um, at, at Coda that day and was wrestling that bigger, heavier, uh, much more difficult to, to ride motorcycle around than the MotoGP bike. I went out, and I think I got 10 or 15 laps on the MotoGP bike, and I went three seconds quicker than I'd gone on the Superbike in the, the two days I'd been testing it up to that point. But do I... Um, do I ever realize that the electronics were helping? No. Um, see photos of myself having ridden the bike, and everywhere I look, the front wheel is, you know, that far off the ground, six inches, eight inches. But I don't remember ever having to get out of the gas and stop it wheeling because for two days, uh, Depuyne had been there riding and testing, and you know the bike was pretty close to to, to set up. You know, I think they were doing sevens or sixes or something like that. that's what Randy did on the bike. Uh, and I did tens or elevens on it. And, um, but to, to, to say that about the Suzuki eight hour bike, when you go out and you're on exactly the same motorcycles, guys that are going riding around in front of you, and I'm following my team, my teammate, Yukio Kageyama. And we go into turn one and I stay with him two, three, four, five, six. We come up and go over the hill around Dunlop. And as it gets up and it flattens out, my bike is going, it's, the front's just moving, the back's just moving. I mean, it's it's on the limit. And at that <laughs> point, from there to the exit of Dunlop, Kegiyama puts 15 bike links on me. And I was wow. like, what? He says, <laughs> and I asked him about it after. I was like, what are you doing there? How, how, how can that happen? I mean, how can my bike be that far off? Because it's decent everywhere else. He says, that corner, you've got to just trust the electronics. It gets up, it gets on that little flat, and when the front starts to move and the back starts to slide, you've got to just trust the electronics and go right on through that and get past that hurdle. And it, it was amazing how much quicker, uh, I mean, how quick, how at that point you're finding a tenth here, maybe a tenth there. You're finding half seconds in places now uh, just because you get to that point. Wow, it, it it's that's the human level, but let's see what the computer level and just trust it and gently roll through it and it's unbelievable how good those motorcycles have gotten wow and, so and, it's, so, and it's so difficult for someone of my era who's always been everything that happens with that motorcycle right or wrong is in my right hand is because i didn't <laughs> have too much gas and whenever at the wrong time and it's there's me to blame whereas um you know trusting that where that sensation is that you get when that bike's on the limit and making yourself go that little bit further i used to always say that means that's hospital any any if i come in the garage guys <laughs> if i go any faster than that it's hospital <laughs> <That's what's happening. laughs> so it's uh it's difficult to program yourself and that once again is a something that the 46 desserts 46 deserves a ton of credit for being able to do to go from riding a 125 and a 250 and a 500 and I'm sure it's been a gradual progression into the electronic era, but um, wow, to be able to to convince yourself that that's what you got to do. 
you know, if I'd have ridden the eight hour and continued to ride and develop bikes and, and, and play around with things at that level that were electronic uh, assisted, I probably could have could have enjoyed that, I would think, maybe to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. Well, you mentioned in the before Suzuka, Kota, which obviously is an amazing racetrack. I only was able to go for the first time last year. Turn one, absolutely unbelievable. It's like a wall. Uh, but you were obviously very involved in that project, and it's a really stunning track. What can you tell us about that and how the track came together to be what it is? You know, it's uh, a friend of mine in Austin that uh, that had a relationship with Bernie Ecclestone, and, and, and Tavo said, you know, he said, if we can come up with a, uh, a way to get this track built, he goes, I can get Formula, you know, we can have a Formula One contract. He goes, and actually, I think if I can get the get it convince F1 I can do it we can get the we can start getting the track built for we can, we can get the track built with just having the F1 contract we'll, we'll be able to find investors to do it he says w- would you be interested in helping and trying to, to to make it safe and challenging from a two-wheel perspective and I absolutely I'd love to you know that, that's something that you know when I when I retired from racing I told Carmelo I said if I ever have the chance to, to help bring MotoGP to to Texas or someplace uh, around our great state, uh, I'd love that opportunity. And he shook his head and said, "Yeah, Kevin, absolutely, we'd love to have that." But um, you know, to 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 be able to to talk directly with the FIA and the FIM and get them to communicate with each other on at the bottom of turn two, instead of there being guardrail tucked right at the outside edge of the track, they just run off that. You know, my my buddy Cal Crutchlow tested it all the way, all the way to the barriers a couple of years ago. Oh. Uh, not, not to pick on Cal, but, uh, you know, I think we can say, uh, even today that in the seven years now that it's been racing, um, that, that nobody's made it to the barriers, uh, you know, from a crash standpoint. Yeah. They've gotten up and they've gotten in possibly the bikes slid in there and, and gone, gone to the, to the barriers. But, uh, as far as people go, we, we did a pretty good job letting the FIA and the FIM realize what it took and that the track really needed to be suitable for, for both uh, both world championships. And having that uh, impact on American racing, what was it like you're visiting the, the Grand Prix there? I think you were there last year, weren't you? Was it, did, it, did we see yes, that? Was it the, yeah. yeah. And, uh, I've been, well, there, also, I've been also, there every year at the first one. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I did read that part. Don't worry, we'll glaze over that part for you. But um, but what was it like seeing it come to fruition? Because also, like, it gets packed there. There was a lot of people coming to watch it, and it's such a great atmosphere. Everybody's so friendly. They're also knowledgeable as well. Not something which, with all due respect to to Americans, like, it's not something you would expect these days, given the the lack of sort of American talent at the very top of the sport at the moment. You know. You know, I, I think the facility in itself is uh, is is such a first class place that everybody just wants to be there. You know, and, and there's so many motorsports uh, fans, especially two wheel uh, in America. And in when we did started talking about the track and the demographic just in Texas, I mean, for, within a 200 mile radius of Austin, we have have 25 million people so if we can't make a trip we can't make a trip. i mean you, you could drive there in less than two hours uh you know in three hours you're 200 miles really but uh you know if we can't uh, we can't build a facility and put a put a competition on here that, that we can at least get just the texans to come to much less all the rest of the united states so america and the rest of the world um you know and i think the guys that, that built the facility did a 
did a great job that didn't cut any corners. Um, you know, and it, it, it's a place that uh, that we're seeing more and more manufacturers, whether it's motorcycle or car, really want to come spend some time, want to film their new cars, maybe do their ads there. Uh, you know, it All is right. the pinnacle of motorsport in America, that's for sure. Well, speaking of motorsport in America, <clears throat> obviously you guys were sort of the, not the last, of course, but Americans really had already invaded Grand Prix racing. Just before then, there was you and Wayne, and then a few since, and obviously Nikki Hayden. But we've had quite a gap now for a few years where we've not had as many Americans. How do you see the future now and how to encourage younger riders to get to the top? We'll talk about Joe Roberts in a second. <laughs> but the, the, kids who are, the kids who are on the way up and thinking, I want to be a motorcycle rider, or maybe they don't even know yet that that's what they want to be. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that as a, as a kid... Um, you know, when somebody said, do you want to go to, my, you know, I was racing here in America. And somebody said, well, do you want to go to England and race a bike in Easter, on, you know, Easter weekend at the match? It's like, are you kidding me? Of course I do. And I, I think that that in itself is what so many riders, uh, so many young riders are missing these days. And it's like, well, what, what bike is it? What team is it? How good a bike is it going to be? You know, to me, it was irrelevant. I'm going to go to, I'm going to get to go to England. I'm going to get to go race motorcycles in England. You get, are you kidding? Um, you know, and I went over and rode Tony Rudder's TT bike from 1985 oh. at the match in 86. It was a, it was a, it was a bike that had right hand shift on it when it's, when I got to the track, you know, Heron, Heron Suzuki and a bunch of the guys there really helped bring that bike to, to be a, a much, a much, well, first of all, I couldn't have ridden it with right hand shift, but um, you know, it was it was fast. It was fairly standard as far as suspension went. We got uh, a rear shock for it. We got spare sets of wheels for it. But I, I, my my main reason for this story is I think so many kids, uh, you know, race here at a certain level in America and go, oh, well, I get a chance to go ride a Moto Two bike or maybe a good race Spanish Championship or the Italian. Do you know anything about this? You know, Kevin, do you know anything about this team? Well, no, I don't. You know, I think the opportunity to go jump on something internationally it doesn't matter what kind of bike it is as long as it's safe, um, go ride it because everybody knows teams teams are smart enough that they can tell the talent when they say if you go there and put a bike that's normally been 15th on the grid and you put it 10th and it normally finishes somewhere in between 10 and 15 in the race and you put it in the top 10 they're going to look at you and go wow you know th this kid is good it's not you don't you're not going to have the opportunity to go win every race you get you get on a motorcycle and go race but you know my example at the match races i went there i rode a bike it was a good bike it handled well when we won barry sheen saw me brought me kept me there for two weeks took and put me on a 500 at the race of the year i almost won the race of the year next thing you know the the, the world's at my footstep i mean it's just right there because of meeting one person while i was over there a performance that was that was decent on a, on a, on a bike that if you'd have told me or showed me what it was before I went, I'd have gone, Oh, really? I got right now. But so you know, I, I think our kids are a bit spoiled and just want to be, um, you know, Rossi's teammate or, or Marquez's teammate. Otherwise yeah, I'll just stay in American race here. Um, you know, roll the dice every now and then you got to challenge yourself uh, daily. That's for sure. 
That does sound a lot like what the current American in the Grand Prix scene has actually done. Joe Roberts, of course, he spent last year not on very competitive machinery. The year before, he was doing development work for another chassis manufacturer. You put him on a competitive one, and my goodness, you, you saw what he did in guitar. What did you make of that? It sort of rings true to kind of what you were saying there, I think. Yeah, you know, and, and Joe's, Joe's gotten some good experience under his belt. And, uh, you know, I would have thought that he was going to shine sooner than, than just guitar this year. Uh, I I picked him to come to the eight hour and ride for one of the teams that I that I helped manage with Kagiyama. Um, I forget how many years ago it was now, two or three years ago. And uh, you know I, I thought Joe did a great job um, to see how competitive he was. To, you know I heard he was fastest in practice, and then I was like, oh, wow. And then I heard he was fastest in qualifying. Like, wow, well, okay. You know we'll see in the race. And I'm sure he's the one right now that's wishing. Everybody would just get back to normal. We can oh, no, back bless to the race. I'm, I'm sure he's scratching his head. Am I going to have that same form when I get back on the bike? And what he needs to do is need to. He just needs to stay doing the same stuff he was doing leading up to the start of the race, up to the start of the season, and not ever even second guess himself. And just next time he gets on the bike and he gets to go racing again, he'll be just the same Bill Roberts he was in Qatar. And uh, you know, it's it's created a lot of excitement in America about road racing again. And uh, you know, hopefully some of our kids here. I, I don't think our talent pool in America is any less deep than it was in the day when Rainey and I raced and Roberts and Lawson and everybody. Um, but d- just that avenue to get kids there. You know, our American championship doesn't mm-hmm. have much factory support in it. Wayne Rainey's there working with Moto America trying to, to get that factory involvement back because without Suzuki, you know, I had a contract with Suzuki for – to race with Yoshimura for 85. And then I had an American Suzuki contract, 86, 87. And halfway through 87, we're doing pretty good and winning races. And I'm thinking, guys, hey, where's my where's my contract? Because if not, I'm going to start talking to some, some other team. They say, why? what do you mean? You're, we've been told in the last year that your contract's with Japan next year. Like, really? Um, Japanese championship? I mean, I, I, I knew that little about it. So, um without factory involvement and them seeing you do something somewhere and realizing that's the person we want to take on to the world championship and, and try and, uh, and, and try and conquer the world uh, without Suzuki doing that. There's no way my family and I could have possibly accomplished that on our own. Okay. That's an interesting perspective. Ask you one more thing then with what you said about coming to the match races, obviously you took that opportunity straight away we want to know now. Be kind, because we're obviously both British. What were your What were your thoughts when you first came to the UK? What was that experience like? The place, the people, the racing, anything. <laughs> absolutely, I absolutely loved it. You know, the I think the first year we came, it was all just at Donington Park. We didn't ever race anywhere else. And then the second year in '87, we raced three races one day at Brands Hatch when we traveled for a day, and then Great we raced track. two days races each day at Donington um you know I, I guess what I what I left there thinking was with Rob Mack and Rob uh Ron Haslam and all those guys who were current Grand Prix racers there but I mean on such ordinary equipment in 1986 I mean Rob Mack was promised Eddie's Daytona winning bike from 86 and he got a bike that was a show bike that was on display <laughs> When Eddie was out racing the bike, the new guy he got oh. the show bike from under the seat. Such a standard bike. But I thought to myself, and, it, and maybe it helped me 
with my career in Grand Prix racing is, you know, these guys are just normal guys. You know, they ride motorcycles and yeah, some of them are really fast, but you can beat them. You know, may not beat them every weekend, but you can beat them certain weekends. And, um, you know, but the hospitality, um, yeah, just everything in, uh, about England. And England was what I still call my second home because that's where our team was based. That's where we used to pretty much own the British Grand Prix. Um, you know, we walked. I was there in two, God, what was it, 2013 or four? I don't even remember when I was the last time I was at Donington. Walked in with the, 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 the guys from the team, Suzuki, and they said, you know, we used to walk through those gates in the morning and go, who's going to finish second? <laughs> we've, we've got this we've got this place covered Who, who's going to be who's going to be the first loser and uh, you know it uh, to me it, it the English people it's been something that have always been really close to my heart the um what was your favorite food uh in the uh when you came to england that first time that obviously it would have been thrown into a bit of a deep end there would have been like fish and chips around pies in the pub and this and that did anything make you go oh god or was it delicious <laughs> no, I think I pretty much ate everything they served us at the hotel, but uh, race day, I think I still went drive through McDonald's. <laughs> For goodness sake. <laughs> and there's me. I was thinking I'll say the best American food, or certainly the best food in Austin, is that barbecue. It's incredible. But no, you just want McDonald's. That's fine. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted back then. I can't remember the last time I had McDonald's. But uh, yeah, that's one of the other great things about it. It's such a cool city. It's, uh, it's got some of the, some really, really good food. Uh, you know, some not, not too expensive, but restaurants every. I mean, they're used to have a friend there that has a restaurant called Barlotta. And when he built it seven years ago, this section of road that's six or eight miles long had 50 restaurants in it from 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 the top 50. to the bottom oh my 50, goodness 50 restaurants and he says it's got almost triple that now there's almost 100 and everybody with everything that's going on everybody's trying to do takeaway and all that but uh yeah i mean it's just a city that's continued to grow and uh the selection of restaurants are second to none that's for sure yeah, it's pretty yeah, great. Yeah, definitely agree. Take it from a visitor as well, guys. If you get the chance, go to Austin and go to Kota. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, to finish off then, uh, Kevin, we have to do a little bit of a quick fire round. Just, uh, I think it's like 10 or so questions, which are what do you prefer sort of thing. And uh, hopefully, well, try and answer as instinctively and as quickly as possible. Uh, so thanks again, Kenwood, for, for this sponsored segment. Thank you very much, guys. So I'll start it off and then, Fran, you go for the, the second question. We'll do one each. Uh, what do you Ready? prefer then, Kevin? Coffee or tea? Coffee. That was a quick answer. All all the Americans have gone straight for the coffee and the Europeans. I think we need to wait for the Brit to even dream of asking that question again, to be honest. Yeah, it's true. Uh, how about Transatlantic Trophy or Daytona 200? Transatlantic Trophy by far. Okay. Uh, Austin or Houston? Austin. Uh, what's your favorite thing about Suzuka? The challenge, just how challenging the track is. What, uh, what do you prefer, summer or winter? Summer. Does it even exist, winter, down in Texas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit. It, all it changes is the fishing a little bit. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite on-track moment? Could be a pass or a win or anything. Uh, it has to be the one that's mentioned to me most is Hockenheim 91. 
Okay. What um what would you what did you prefer back in the day when you were racing four wheels? Uh, racing four wheels in the US or Australia? Australia, definitely. Why is that? You know, it's just that much more laid back. It's you know, it, it, it there's not there wasn't near when I did four wheels in the US to four wheels in Australia. There was never uh, an overabundance of, of really competitive cars. So you could go out and you could practice and you'd always in America you might not qualify for the race, whereas in Australia you could race and at least then you could work on your race craft, you could adjust the car, you could try and learn something, whereas in America, when there were 70 cars trying to qualify for a 36-car field, um, you know, that means almost half of you get to go home. So not much – and there's not much practice time in a few laps in practice and a few laps in qualifying. And, wow, we didn't quite do well enough. Well, we'll try next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that was frustrating. Uh, okay, what is your – what is it? Okay, here we go. The biggest fish you've ever caught – a tarpon in Sanibel, Florida. And then I would guess it was probably 110, maybe 120 pounds. Big, big. Did you catch anything today? Yes, I did, but nothing near that big. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, next one then. Um, what do you think is more physical, doing a Grand Prix at Kota or a stint in the Suzuka 8 Tower? I think... Um, stint at the suzuki eight hour especially a, a good fast stint you know you could do you could do a nice easy 210 212 stint but to do a seven the 207 or 208 stint mainly because of the how hot it is and how humid it is it is an absolute unless you get lucky and there's a little bit of weather or maybe it's rain or it's just a little bit cooler than it typically is but the last year i was at suzuka um 110 with over 100% humidity by lunchtime every day. I mean, just unbelievable. You get out, you get out of your leathers after doing just a long stint in practice, and it's like you just finished a race in the rain. So, I think that's genuinely my worst nightmare. <laughs> um, who who's been then? We might have had a spoiler for this earlier. Who has been your favorite teammate? Favorite teammate, Rob McElnay. Cool. Have you have you been seeing all his uh, stories on Twitter recently? I have not. He's he's we, been we, he's he's been doing a story every day on Twitter from a year in his career, and it's really popular. It's good fun. <laughs> yeah, it is good. You should he, get involved. He said he he still says that, that Suzuki hired him just to look after me. He was supposed to be my minder and just kind of help us get around Europe and show us what to do. And how to... <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, so just two more then. Uh, who is someone that you wish was your teammate that wasn't? You know, I'd like to have had Wayne Rainey as my teammate. Nice answer. How how, how uh, wholesome yeah. that one is. Hashtag soundbite. Yeah. Um, also, okay, the final one then. Describe a five... Can I, can I, can I, say, <laughs> I would have liked to have had him as my teammate or been his teammate, one of, either one. Ah, oh, okay. Okay, Excellent. cool, cool. Um, describe a 500cc bike in three words or less. Totally unrideable. <laughs> Excellent. What a great way uh, to finish off. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much once again, Kenwood, for sponsoring that uh, that last little segment there. Thank you, Kevin, for, for all your time. Really appreciate you uh, coming back for your fish and chip and, uh, and speaking to us here. Really, really great to actually um, hear some awesome perspectives on things. 
Thanks, guys. Hope to see you at Coda sometime soon. Yes, most definitely. Thank you so much. Stay safe. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll speak to you soon in person at the uh, America's Grand Prix. And November 15th, I think, right? Yeah, should be, should be. I think so. Well, let's let's hope. Let's hope this all gets sorted before then, shall we? Absolutely, guys. Stay safe. We'll do. talking to you. And you. Bye, Kevin. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Bye. Well... Kevin Schwantz, everybody, a uh, a hero of mine growing up, although sadly, of course, I would have never got to see him race, but amazing to get to speak to him. And for anyone wondering, if you're listening and you're not quite a nostalgic MotoGP fan or whatnot, uh, Kevin, when we spoke about him doing the Suzuki Great Hour, he only did that a few years ago. He actually got third place in 2013. He did that at the, oh, <laughs> the age of 49 years old. Going down the Suzuki Hour, Nori Haga was his teammate. Stuff. Yeah, and Yukio Kagiyama, as you said, what an absolute legend! Like, I, yeah, a great chat, really, really great chat. Really was, and there are a few racing topics, but I also really enjoyed getting to hear a little bit more about different stuff, and not just what was your opinion on this race. Hopefully, you guys all did too. Uh, let us know, as always. Get in touch. Feel free. Be kind to both your hosts and our guests. And the sound and, uh, quality from Skype and this and that and the others. Indeed. So for those we of you, try our best. <laughs> yes. For those of you watching on YouTube, of course, leave a comment, a like, subscribe, all that, all that jazz. Exactly. And then hopefully we'll have another incredible VIP coming pretty soon. We've got a good little list now. Just trying to get everything organised. And let us know if there's anyone you want to hear from on these podcasts as we wait out lockdown. And thanks for joining us. Bye for now. Just hit the table. Ouch.